The wisdom of God is superior to the wisdom of men. And there are leaders who follow the wisdom of men rather than the wisdom of God. We're going to read about both kinds as we stand and read two sections of Scripture. If you have your Bibles, would you stand with me? And let's turn to Job chapter 12. It's amazing to me, I never cease to be amazed at how relevant the Bible is. Absolutely dead on speaking to our times. Let's read Job 12, 23 down to 25, and uh, let's see how relevant this is. He makes the nations great, then destroys them. He enlarges the nations, then leads them away. Speaking of leaders now, of nations, he deprives of intelligence the chiefs of the earth's people and makes them wander in a pathless waste. They grope in darkness with no light, and he makes them stagger like a drunken man. Now, we have witnessed that this week. But there's another kind of leader, and that would be in Nehemiah chapter 7. Nehemiah says in 7, 1, we'll go down to verse 3. Now, when the wall was rebuilt, and I had set up the doors, and the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites were appointed. Now, here we go. Watch this. Then I put Hanani, my brother, and Hananiah, the commander of the fortress, in charge of Jerusalem, for he was a faithful man, and feared God more than many. Now, there you go. That's what we're looking for. Next verse. Then I said to them, Do not let the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot, and while they are standing guard, let them shut and bolt the doors. Also, appoint guards from the inhabitants of Jerusalem, each at his post and each in front of his own house. We'll deal with that in a few minutes. But let's bow our heads in prayer. Our Father, we come to you with hearts that are heavy for our Christian brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. We're, we're free to assemble and open our Bibles. Some of us opened our phones, our apps, and we're reading the scriptures on our phones. We've heard reports this week that when the Taliban comes in, they'll ask for a phone. If they see a Bible app, it's a death sentence. And there have been Christians who have given their lives for Christ this week, who have been kidnapped, who have been tortured, who have been beaten. Our hearts ache for them. We, we commit them to you, but those who suffer to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Your, your eye is upon them. You love them with an everlasting love. 
Father, you allow your church to be persecuted at times. It's, it's true from church history. It's true around the world. We have been exempt. We are having just a taste, and we may get more. But may we learn from the courage of Christians around the world who pay a great price. And may we learn from their faith. May we learn from their trust in you and the trust they have in the word of God. That's what stabilizes them. That's what gives them hope. And we're so thankful, Lord, that you are mindful of them. We are so grateful that you are near to the brokenhearted and that you save those who are crushed in spirit. We pray for the pastors in Afghanistan, for their flocks. Give those dear people what they need. We pray for our military who are putting themselves on the line and undoubtedly are frustrated that they can't do more. Encourage them, Lord. Encourage the chaplains. Thank you that we have the freedom here to worship. We don't take that privilege lightly. As we look into the scriptures, encourage us. These are strange times. We've never seen anything like what we've been through over the last year and a half, 20 months. And there's more on its way. But you told us, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will help you. I will strengthen you with my mighty right hand. Our trust is in you, not in men, not in possessions, not in this or that. Our trust is in you. Our times are in your hands. The Lord will accomplish that which concerns me. We cannot die till our work is done, and then it's promotion forever in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. As best I can tell, I have a message that's going to run about two hours and 15 minutes. <laughs> I, uh, I hope you brought a lunch, <laughs> but uh, I, I'm not going to do this today. But we've got today and two more Sundays. So we'll break it up in about 45 minutes each, and we'll get through it. Um, First Chronicles 12.32, you don't need to turn there. It just simply says, the men of Issachar understood the times and knew what Israel should do. One of the tribes of the nation of Israel. The men of Issachar understood the times. That means they had discernment. That means, because they understood their times, they were able to make a spiritual diagnosis of what was going on around them. But they didn't just make a spiritual diagnosis. They understood the times and they knew what Israel should do. Because they were men of God, they not only understood the times, they could spiritually diagnose, but they could spiritually prescribe because they were tuned into the wisdom of God. And they knew what steps they needed to take on a daily basis because they trusted in the Lord God Almighty to lead them. Now, that's the outline I've got. It's real simple. It's a two-part outline. The first thing we're going to do today is a spiritual diagnosis 
of our times, of what's going on around us. The second thing is we're going to look at a spiritual prescription. You go to the doctor, you have your physical. He'll tell you, you're good here, you're good here. This needs to be addressed. He gives you a diagnosis. He may give you a prescription. Take this, apply it, do what it says. We're going to do this in regard to the days in which we are living. I uh, don't listen to a lot of country music, but I came across a country song last week. And it, uh, it just stayed with me. It was so unique. And uh, it uh, really, I listened to it several times, and I realized, well, this is the perspective of the guy who wrote the song. And you know, country music is a little quirky. And this was quirky. Uh, I won't recite the lyrics. I'll give you the title. And the title of this song was this. God is great. Beer is good. People are crazy. <laughs> Do you know this song? Let's stand and sing that together. <laughs> Just the first and the third verse. God is great. Beer is good. People are crazy. Now that's the songwriter's perspective. May not be yours, may not be mine, but it's his. Uh, we've never lived through a time like this. We've never seen a season like this. But it's here, and it's real, and we're all thinking about it all the time and processing and trying to navigate it and fight off fear and anxiety and worry and depression and all those things that accompany uncertainty. I, I, I started thinking maybe I should write a song. I've never done it. But I, I'm working on a country song. I, I don't have the music yet. I don't have any lyrics, but I've got a title. And uh, this is from my perspective. And my perspective, it's all in this title. My, here's my title. God is great. The Bible is true. And our leaders are insane. Now, I, and let's say this, thank the Lord, it's not all leaders. You know, God always has his Daniels, always, and he's got them placed strategically all over the world in every strata of society. He's got his people. There's always a remnant that's devoted to Christ. Doesn't matter what they face, doesn't matter what they're threatened with, doesn't matter. They're all in with the Lord Jesus Christ, and they stand for the truth of Christ. Onward, Christian soldiers. You know that hymn? Marching as to war with the cross of Jesus going on before. Well, we're in spiritual battle. There's no doubt about it. But I, I, you know, I kind of like that title. Personally, God is great. The Bible is true. Our leaders are insane. Not all leaders. And we can identify leaders who have stood for Christ and are standing for Christ. And we thank God for them. And we support them. And we encourage them. Send them emails of support. Because they're getting the heat every day. They're standing against the gates of hell. But the fact is, we have a lot of leaders. 
that are insane morally and spiritually. Now, I'm going to spend the majority of my time this morning on the diagnosis of spiritual insanity and moral insanity because I want you to know it's real and it is covered in scripture and we need to have some understanding and, and once we delve into the scripture because the Lord's very clear about this stuff once we delve into these verses you're going to immediately recognize it I, I want to begin with Isaiah chapter 5 verse 20 in Isaiah 5 verse 20 this is the primary symptom of of moral and spiritual insanity in our day. Isaiah 5:20 says this, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. We are surrounded by this. We are, um, and I don't have to go into much detail because you know exactly what I'm talking about. We, we have flipped everything upside down. We are in, in this culture, in this, and, and it's not just our culture, it's not just America, it's Canada, and, the, and England and the rest of the United Kingdom, it's down to Australia, New Zealand, part of that same kingdom. It would be in Europe. What historically has been known as um, Western civilization, which Churchill always called Christian civilization, the nations that were founded and basically affected greatly by the Reformation under Martin Luther, where they returned to the gospel and the word of God, and the truth of Jesus Christ, those nations, everything changed for them. It became the basis of their, of their law. It became the basis of their justice. The Word of God did. It was not, in other words, they didn't follow the Koran, they followed the Word of God. And if you follow the Koran, you're going to get it one place. You follow the Word of God, you're going to get it another place. That's just the fact of the matter, and we're seeing that being played out right now. Isaiah 5.20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant men and mixing strong drink. Watch this. Who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. Boy, does that fit or what? They take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. Because you see, this is the deal. If you stand for what is right, in fact, if you call evil evil instead of calling evil good, someone's coming after you. More than likely, the government will come after you because the government is now legislating evil and calling it good. And if you don't sign on, and it's in corporations, it's everywhere around us. This is a clear-cut symptom of moral and spiritual insanity. Look over at uh, Proverbs 24, 24. There's another symptom. 
just a very short section, but it cuts right to the core of what we see around us every day. Twenty-four, twenty-four of Proverbs. Now watch this. He who says to the wicked, you are righteous. Peoples will curse him, nations will abhor him. But to those who rebuke the wicked will be delight and a good blessing will come upon them. So according to the wisdom of God, you don't say to an evil person, you are righteous. But in this culture, in this day and age, nobody wants to be canceled. Nobody wants to be disliked. We all want to be liked. So the temptation. You know, we could use hundreds of illustrations. There's no reason to use a lot of illustrations. One comes to mind here, Jim Daly at Focus on the Family. This was in his newsletter. He writes, just weeks ago, journalist Katie Herzog wrote a widely circulated piece based on firsthand accounts explaining how professors at leading medical schools now sincerely apologize to their medical students for simply implying that only women can get pregnant. That's insane. You know why that's insane? Because only women can get pregnant. That's why that's insane. That's nonsensical. That is foolish. That is stupid. But you're not supposed to say that. But what do you do when it's the truth? You say it. Because it's true. Herzog asked, why would medical school professors apologize for referring to a patient's biological sex? Well, that's a good question. You're male, you're female. You know, that's going to hurt a snowflake. <laughs> why would medical school professors apologize for referring to a patient's biological sex, Herzog asked. Because as one medical student explained to her, acknowledging biological sex can be considered transphobic. We never heard that word until five years ago. Didn't even exist. Even the Journal of Women's Health has declared it's time for OBGYNs to care for people of all genders. I mean, it is laughable and it's tragic. Utterly tragic. And it's insane. Now, reading between the line here, the lines, I, I'd be interested in how many medical school professors really have shifted their views. I, I have a strong suspicion that many of them actually know the truth, but they really want to hold on to their positions. And so as a result, what they are doing is that they are, in order to protect themselves, they are saying to the evil that you are righteous. To those on the faculty that are postulating such nonsense, they're signing on in order to keep their position in their financial security. But perhaps others really have had a change of mind then they're really insane. So, so what do we do with this? 
the question is this. This can happen to individuals, and this can happen to nations. And it's happening in our nation. It's happening all over the world. How does an individual or a nation become morally and spiritually insane? Let's turn to Romans chapter 1. We're going to look at verse 18, this, this section. I, I, it's important to dive into this because God explains clearly to his people, here's what's going on. I want you to know what's going on. I want you to know about sin. I want you to know of the consequences and the results. So in Romans 1.18, and, and again, I'm going to go back to the song title I've been working on. God is great. The Bible is true. Our leaders are insane. Why are our leaders insane? Because they deny that God is great, and they deny that the Bible is true. You're going to see that's why in Romans 1, they've gone insane. Because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That's it. He is truth. He didn't invent truth. He is truth. That's either true or it isn't. If it's not true, we've been deceived. But he rose from the dead, and over 500 saw him at one time. And people died and refused to recant because they saw him. And because they saw him and they knew he conquered death and did it on their behalf so that they could have eternal life, they refused to compromise and gave their lives because they knew to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And it is far better to be with him. That's the truth. And the Christians in Afghanistan and North Korea and China and all over the world, they're facing that every day. And see, this is the acid test of Christianity. Romans 1. For the wrath of God, verse 18, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now watch this who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. It's very important because he's going to go on the next two verses and he's going to show us that all men know the truth about God. Even men without the Bible, they know the truth about God. So they're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness that the idea is to put truth in a box and sit on it, but the problem is truth keeps jumping out and knocking you off the box. 19, because... That which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. But you say, well, they don't have a Bible. I mean, they don't know the Ten Commandments. Ah, flip the page over and look at the, the next chapter. Look at Romans 2, verse 14. For when Gentiles, unbelievers, non-Jews, do not have the law, do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law, written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. You see what he's saying? God has written, I mean, quite frankly, the Ten Commandments were not written just on tablets of stone, but they were written on every human heart. 
So even someone who's never heard the gospel, someone who doesn't have access to a Bible, they knew the truth of God. They know you shall have no other gods before you when they worship idols. They know there is one God. Yet they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And then it goes on in 20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Did you see that full moon last night? Early in the week, did you see that crescent moon with Venus hanging off to the side? I'll tell you, chance is an incredible thing. And what are the chances of that coming together like that? Well, there's no chance. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. End of story. Jesus, all things were created by him and for him and through him. Jesus put those stars up there. He knows them by name. Just like he knows you by name. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, the creation. So you look in a telescope, you see the fingerprints of God. You look in a microscope, you're going to see the fingerprints of God. He's everywhere. So that they are without excuse. No excuse, it's clear, it's crystal clear. For even though they knew God, 21, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. So we can't go over this too quickly. Even though they knew God, they knew him, they knew he was there. They, knew, they, 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 they know he's real. They know he exists. Even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God. Why not? We want to honor ourselves. We want to be the center of our own universe. We don't want to be under any authority. We want to be our own authority. We want to be our own God. We're all born in the world as sinners. And this is why we've got to train children. Because children are just cute little sinners. They got it from your wife's side of the family. And they got it from your side, all sides. We pass on sin nature to our children. And you know the thing about little kids? They don't want to submit to authority. And even when they're little infants, they don't want to submit to your authority. But you see, you're that authority in their lives, and you've got to teach them to submit to authority so that later they will learn the importance of submitting to the authority of God and police officers and those in the world and those that legitimately are over them. It's just how the world works. Even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations. Their foolish heart was darkened. So they know the truth, but they won't adhere to the truth. They won't honor the truth. They won't obey the truth. Now, there's going to be a progression, a downward progression here. This is how someone gets morally insane. Professing to be wise, they became fools. That's the Ivy League. That's the academic system in America. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. 24, therefore, this is key. Therefore, 
Now we're going to see three times it's going to say God gave them over. Here's the first time. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. So they went their own way sexually. If uh, Others have written about this, but if you look back just over the last 50 years in America, there was a radical change in the 60s because in the 60s, there was a sexual revolution. I went to high school 25 miles south of San Francisco, and I saw... I remember the song. Maybe you remember that. If you're going to San Francisco, be sure to wear some flowers in your hair. One of the great hymns of the faith. <laughs> I mean, it was crazy. And these kids started coming from all over the world, and they went to Haight-Ashbury. And Haight-Ashbury was just an old, regular, lower-middle-class neighborhood. A buddy of mine lived there with his grandmother while he was going to dental school at the University of California. And Haight-Ashbury just... It started with a couple of psychedelic shops, and I mean, took off. And with that came a sexual revolution. And people were sleeping with people, and there were love fests, and there was Woodstock, and there was all this stuff. Free love and Golden Gate Park, and it spread all over the country and really all over the world. For they 25. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Now, 26. He's going to give them over again. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. Now you've got a homosexual revolution, a homosexual rebellion. And in the same way, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire towards one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. This is a result of rejecting God and rejecting his revelation his word, his truth. God invented sex. He invented it. He came up with it. He's not shocked. He's not stunned. He's for it. But because he's a good father, he gives us parameters for our well-being, for our happiness, for the procreation of children it's, it's a mercy. It's a goodness. It's a gift from God. But you went outside those rails. There can be horrendous pain. All right, let's go to 28. This is the third time now they're going to be given over. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over, watch this, to a depraved mind. To a depraved mind. The King James Version says to a reprobate mind. Um, what does this mean? This is moral and spiritual insanity. There is a decline. If you continue to suppress the truth of God, if you continue to suppress the clear witness of God that he is there, if you continue to want to go your own way, the worst thing that can ever happen is for God to let you go your own way. And he is merciful and he is long-suffering, but there is a process, and you can see it in our country since the 60s. One commentator says, first the heart is rotten and the body follows, and then the mind goes. What is a depraved mind? Well, the word literally means tested and found useless, 
disqualified for its intended purpose, a non-functioning mind. Reasoning is so corrupted that it is crippled. The faculty, the intellectual faculty, can no longer function. The moral law of God written in the heart has literally been stomped and replaced with cultural immorality. The conscience cannot function. It's a type of insanity. You cannot think straight because you have rejected God in your mind and he's let you go that way. This is serious stuff. And it's what's going on around us. We see it in every level of life, every side of life. It's turning things upside down. It's, it's a judgment of God. Tim Challies makes an additional comment here that's very helpful. And, and once again, I'm spending a lot of time here on this spiritual diagnosis because we need to see this for what it is. And we also cannot forget that, that God sent his son to save sinners. We're all sinners. For all sin and fallen short of the glory of God, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. The gospel is ever increasing. The Lord is at work. And we, hey, no one started out following Jesus. We were against Jesus. All of us like sheep have gone astray. We've turned to his, each one to his own way. But Christ came to redeem. Christ came to save sinners. And this is why we stand for the gospel. And this is why we don't compromise the gospel. And this is why, this is important. Because sometimes people we love wander and they stray. And they get into things that will harm them physically, spiritually, and we say to ourselves, well, I don't really want to get involved with that. I don't, you know, and we just kind of try to skirt around it. At some point, you got to talk about it. Because if, and, and what often is, is being asked for is complete acceptance. And by that, they mean complete approval without any consequences in a family or in a church. And when people are complimented, and people are affirmed in those choices that are clearly against the Word of God, you're not doing them any favors. Because those who practice immorality will not inherit eternal life. They will not do it. Read the Scriptures. God has very clear-cut markers in place. If you practice sexual immorality, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Can't be done. Because you're persisting. You're not submitting. But it's, well, we, we, we just all want to get along. You can't all get along. You're either going to, if you deny telling them the truth... How can they be saved? Now, obviously, you want to do it in the right way at the right time under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, but you just can't zip it up and be kind. We are to wrap truth and kindness around our necks. If all you have is kindness, you can't help them. The only thing that will help them is truth. Jesus said in John 8, 
If you abide in my word, if you continue in my word, then you shall know the truth. And the truth shall what? Set you free. Only the gospel can set people free. And they're being set free every day. But they have to know the truth. Charlie says, in Romans 1, Paul teaches it is God who actively restrains human evil. Have you ever thought about this? Nothing but his kind and gracious hand of restraint keeps humanity from falling deeper and deeper into the darkest depravity. Without God's active restraint, humanity would accept, practice, and rejoice in every kind of evil, yet there is a limit to God's restraint. When human beings prove that they are utterly hell-bent on sinning, when they fight tooth and nail against God's restraining grace, he begins to release his hand. That's what Romans 1 is all about. He begins to give them what they want, even though what they want will destroy them. God releasing his hand of restraint is God extending his hand of judgment. He goes on and says, many biblical scholars employ here a metaphor of a boat near shore in a swiftly flowing river. God's hand of restraint on humanity is like a hand holding the rope that keeps the boat from being swept downstream to destruction. But as humanity continues to rebel, God eventually gives them what they want. He gives them the freedom to sin in the ways they long to. Yet this freedom is actually their punishment. This freedom is an expression of his wrath because it only takes them farther from him and closer to destruction. He loosens his grip on the rope. He shoves it from shore. The New Testament scholar Douglas Moo says, the meaning of given over, of handover, demands that we give God an active role as the initiator of the process. God does not simply let the boat go, but he'll give it a push downstream. Like a judge who hands over a prisoner to the punishment his crime has earned, God hands over the sinner to the terrible cycle of increasing sin. That's what's happening in our culture. So we have to lovingly tell the truth and not compromise the gospel because it's the only thing that can save forever for eternity. That's the diagnosis. Now the question is, the men of Issachar understood the times. We've been understanding our times. They had the diagnosis, but they also knew what Israel should do. So the question is, what do we do living in this as believers following the Lord Jesus Christ? I think a key verse for us is Ephesians 5, verse 15, which says, Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. That's a great verse. The days are evil. It's increasingly evil. In 1959, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was pastor of Westminster Chapel in London, said to his congregation, now think about this, this is 1959. He got up before his congregation and he made the statement, we are living in days of exceptional evil. 1959. But you see, Lloyd-Jones was born in the 1800s. To him, it was exceptional evil. He wouldn't believe this stuff. Well, actually he would because he, he knew Romans 1. We are living in days of exceptional evil. So what do we want to do? Well, we want to ask God every day throughout the day for his wisdom. How do I navigate this? How do I respond? What do I say? What do I not say? Lord, help me to be 
Help me to be in your word. Give me your discernment. Help me to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. What we need is the wisdom of God. Uh, be careful how you walk, not as unwise. I've done that. I've done that a lot. I, I, can't, I don't want to be unwise. I want to be wise. Making the most of your time because the days are evil. And the great thing the Lord says, he tells us in James, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously without holding back. He'll give you the wisdom that you need if, if you ask it. He'll, he'll flat out send it to you. It'll be there when you need it. Don't worry about what you will say if they pull you up before a court. It shall be given to you in that hour what you shall speak. He knows what you need. He's your Savior. And he's always saving. And he's always giving wisdom. You just don't want to go, you don't want to go your own way. This is the deal. You don't want to follow the wisdom of men. You want to follow the wisdom of God. You want to be in the Scriptures. That's the only way to get wisdom. It's the only way to survive. It's the only way to navigate this stuff. Let's move now to the spiritual prescription. We've got the diagnosis. What I want to do here in the two hours we have remaining, <laughs> we got a little bit of time, and let me, let me say this. We're, we're going to touch on two things, and then the next couple of weeks we will continue down the path of the prescription for how to live, how, how, to, uh, how to lead our families, how to live in this culture among unbelievers, um, how to handle things at work, uh, how to stand for Christ, how to speak the truth in love. This is all in, uh, uh, this last spring, we do a men's Bible study here. Uh, it'll be on Wednesday nights. We were on Tuesday for a while because of the pandemic. But uh, we, we were in Nehemiah. And when Chuck asked me if I'd cover three Sundays, I was just thinking, pondering it for a number of weeks. And I thought, you know, I'm going to dive back into Nehemiah because there's so much wisdom here. When, when we're living in a time where so many of our leaders are morally insane, we need to so study someone like Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a, he was, he was a man who was sane and godly. And that's what we're crying out for right now. We need, we need sane and godly homes. We need sane and godly moms and dads. We need sane and godly churches with sane and godly leaders. We, need, we just need sane and godly. That, that's what we need. That's Jesus. That's God. That's the Word of God. There's no other place to find it. So we're going to look at Nehemiah here just briefly as we wrap up this morning. Nehemiah, and turn with me to Nehemiah. We're going to go back to what we read earlier in Nehemiah chapter 7. Uh, let me give you a big picture of Nehemiah here real quickly in the next five, ten minutes, and then we'll be done. Nehemiah is not as well known as other men in the Scriptures, but he was a great leader. He was a godly man. The events of the book of Nehemiah took place 450 years before Jesus was born of a virgin in Bethlehem. Uh, Jerusalem was in bad shape. 
they were, um, it, it, it was not uh, a prosperous time. It, w- it was a time where they were, uh, had many enemies. They were scratching to, to survive and to make it, and they had been in captivity for 70 years. They had returned back to the land of Jerusalem. The big picture, can't go into too many details right now. Let me give you the big picture of Nehemiah. There are 13 chapters. If you get into a helicopter, metaphorically, you get into a helicopter and you hover over the book of Nehemiah, you'll see there's 13 chapters. It's a real simple division of the book. Chapters 1 through 7, Nehemiah rebuilt, reconstructed the wall. So in the first seven chapters, you got the reconstruction of the wall. That's what he did, because the wall had been down for 160 years. It was rubble. And that's not a good thing, because you need a wall for defense. You need gates to keep the bad guys out and protect the good guys inside. Every city had a wall. Now, I don't know why this sounds so familiar, but it does. (laughs) But this is just straight out of, once again, is the Word of God relevant? Who would think there's a book in the Bible about rebuilding a wall? But there is. You say, oh, you're getting political. I'm not getting political. It's in the text. (laughs) But we're living in wicked times. And we're living in insane times. And every nation in the world has a wall, uh, so to speak. It might be a technological wall. It might be a literal wall. Every great civilization in the past had a wall. You can still go, hey, you can still go to China and see the great wall of China. The Babylonians had amazing walls. Jericho had walls. You got a lot of walls in the Bible. And the walls are down, and it's not good. And here's Nehemiah, this godly man, In chapter 1, he's the cupbearer to the king. That was a high position. The king trusted him. And God put it on his heart because he was 800 miles away, and he wanted that wall rebuilt in Jerusalem, and he prayed and asked the Lord to give him wisdom. And the king gave him favor and said, yeah, go rebuild the wall. So he did. That's the first seven chapters of Nehemiah. If you look at Nehemiah 6, verse 15, it says, now remember, it had been down for 160 years. So the wall was completed on the 25th day of the month, Elul, and in 52 days it was completed. So for 160 years it was down, but God put it on his heart. He rallied the people. He gave godly leadership that was sane, and God gave him favor. That's godly leadership. In other words, change can happen, and it can happen quickly. Uh, The second part of Nehemiah is you got the rebuilding of the wall, then in 7 through 13, You've got the, uh, the reinstruction of the people. Reinstruction of what? Of the Word of God. Now, real, no, real quick, I want to make two observations about two tasks that this godly leader immediately di- built, that he immediately did, and it's in Nehemiah 7. See if this isn't relevant. 7.1. Now, when the wall was rebuilt, I had set up the doors, and the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites were appointed. I put Hanani, my brother, and Hananiah, the commander of the fortress, in charge of Jerusalem, for he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. 
I said to them, do not let the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot while they are standing guard. Let them shut and bolt the doors. Watch this. Also appoint guards from the inhabitants of Jerusalem, each at his post and each in front of his own house. From Romans 13, we know that God has appointed government. You can read this later, Romans 13. God has appointed government. They bear the sword, watch this, in order to restrain evil. When countries go insane, the leaders of the country, the government, doesn't restrain evil. They encourage it. That's where we are right now. We've, we, uh, Jesus said in Matthew 24, in the last days, lawlessness will increase. And it's increasing. And we got people, and we've heard these cries now for a while, defund the police, defund the police. He, he established a police force. And he funded it. It's right there in the text. Also appoint guards from the inhabitants of Jer Jerusalem, each at his post, and each in front of his own house. On the side of police guards, to protect, serve, and defend. What were these guys doing? Same thing. They weren't called police. They were guards. What are police officers? They're guards. What do they guard against? Evil. But you see, in all of our burden, and, and isn't Seattle doing well in Portland? <laughs> it's, it's tragic. But lawlessness is increasing. See how relevant this is? He actually funded a police department because that's, he was the governor and he was simply following what God told him to do. You are to restrain evil. You rebuilt the wall, now appoint guards a police force. That was the first thing he did. Along with appointing godly leaders, these two men, who were also sane, and they were also godly. Secondly, he had Ezra the priest teach God's word to all, especially the men. And I'm about done. I'm not quite there. But I'm almost done. Chapter 8 of Nehemiah. We're still hovering. We're looking down at verse 8 now. Ezra was the priest. And uh, see, this is, this is the reinstruction of the people. You rebuild the wall, but now you've got to reinstruct the people. And all the people gathered at the, as one man at the square, which was in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given Israel. Then Israel the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding. He read from it before the square, which was in front of the water gate, from early morning until midday in the presence of men and women, those who could understand, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Look at verse 5. Ezra opened the book in sight of all the people, for he was standing above the people. When he opened it, all the people stood up. Look at verse 8. They read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. And then jump down to 13. Then on the second day, the heads of fathers' households of all the people, the priests, the Levites, were gathered to Ezra the scribe that they might gain insight into the words of the law. So the heads of fathers' households are men. What was the emphasis? How are you going to reinstruct the people? Now you've, restructured, you've reconstructed the wall. Now how do you rebuild the nation? Oh, you've got to instruct the men. We've got a problem with fatherlessness in this country. And when you lose your fathers, you lose the country. Because boys grow up without having a model to emulate. 
they grow, you got, thank God for single moms. Some of you were raised by single moms and they sacrificed and gave everything they had for you. You honor them, we honor them. You were very blessed to have them. But you see, the fact of the matter, it was a very hard job because God didn't design women to do that by themselves. You need a husband and you need a wife, and this is why it's so tragic. Satan always goes after the family. He always goes after the men. He always wants to go against God's creation order. And when that happens, everybody suffers. The boy suffers, the girl suffers. Suffer. Why did he take the men aside? Because God has called men to lead their families, and God's called men to lead the church. This is not a very popular thing anymore, even in the church. But it's what God's word teaches. 2 Timothy 2.2. I want to close by saying something to the men here. Never has the leadership of a man been so critical. Never has the leadership of a woman been so critical. Who are in submission to the word of God. Men have a unique place. Joel Aldrich once said, all of God's people are equally precious, but not all of God's people are equally strategic. Men are strategic. 2 Timothy 2.2, it talks about the older men, and it talks about their qualifications and what should be in their life. It, it, it says older men are to be sober, and they are, depending on what translation you read, they are to be grave, it says in the King James. Uh, other translations say they are to be dignified. It, uh, it's an interesting word. It, it's an example of what is called gravitas. Gravitas. Um, if you go back to the King James, you'll see the word grave and in commenting on this, John Calvin, and a lot of people don't like John Calvin, but I'll tell you what, in his commentaries, he will tell you exactly what the text says. He will not compromise it. Calvin said there should be a becoming gravity in the lives of older men which compels the young to modesty. To modesty. The spiritual weight of these men should be such that their gravitational pull draws younger men into a nearer orbit with God. Because the visible reveals the invisible, gravity itself is a useful analogy. Gravity pulls things into their proper place. It brings and maintains order. If it were to cease, we would all start floating helplessly. Our solar system would be reduced to chaotic chunks of rock spinning wildly into the void. So it is with gravitas. It establishes order and regularity. Without it, our cosmos falls into disorder and chaos, namely Afghanistan. But when you've got a man with gravity... When you've got a man who's committed to Christ and committed to the word of God and committed to his wife and he's not going anywhere and he's committed for better or worse, richer or poorer in sickness and in health, anybody can be committed when it's richer. But the test of commitment is when it's poor. Anybody can be committed when there's health. But the test of commitment is when there's sickness. Anybody can be committed when it's better. We like better. Better homes, better gardens, better cars. Anybody, anybody can be committed when it's better, but the test of commitment is when it's worse. Now, the younger need to see the older men who are committed regardless. 
of what comes. And by the power of your life, and you say, I made a lot of mistakes. We've all made a lot of mistakes. Well, I really screwed up with my kids earlier. We've all done that. But Jesus is a great Savior. And we're in process, and we're maturing, and we're growing in Christ. And as you go through life, and you, and you find Christ, he finds you. He pulls you to himself, and you're born again. And you begin to get a Bible and figure out where the books are, and you begin to go to a Bible-teaching church, and you begin a slow growth. There's no fast growth in the Christian life. You begin a slow growth, and what happens? You begin to mature, but it's a slow maturity. But suddenly you were 20, and now you're 30. And now you can't believe it because two years later you're 45. And six months later, you're 58. And then you're signing up for Medicare. My grandpa was on Medicare. I mean, this is insane. What's happened to me? Well, I'm becoming an older man. And along with the older man, I'm different than I was back then. I'm not perfect, but I'm better because of what Jesus has done in my life. And as a result, I've got a weight. I've got a moral weight. I've got a moral sense from the Word of God that actually which actually holds things together in my home. And when those who are young wander, and they may be away, and they may not even listen or be interested, but they still know that you're there. And it may be after you're dead and gone before they return. We worry about our kids and grandkids. What's it going to be in 20, 30, 40, 50 years? Can't even imagine. But in 40 or 50 years, you can be with the Lord, and it might be the remembrance of you or the Bible you left to them, and they come across something that pulls them back. So what do we do? We get as close to Christ as we can, and we ask for his wisdom every day, and we ask him to help us to live today, not as unwise but as wise. And if it comes to the point of conviction that we can't compromise, you need to have a hill you'll die on. It's going on in Afghanistan. Probably won't happen, but if it happens, you better make the decision because what you'll do, they'll see the gravity that you knew that there was more to life than this earth. This secular culture believes this is the only life that there is. Jesus said there's another world. And that's where we're going. We're going to be fine. Father, we thank you for your word, for your truth. Keep us in the scriptures. Help us to fight off fear and anxiety and worry this week. Don't let us get into despair. Keep us in your word, for in your word I hope. In Jesus' name we pray.